because of distance, we were to do it at home. He didn't give us any alternatives or other places that we might try to put his name, but he said where he placed his name. And clearly through the scriptures, he has placed it in Zion, Jerusalem. Uh, now the question that we discussed somewhat last week is where is that Zion and where is that Jerusalem? And we've seen quite a few scriptures which indicate that it may not be in the place that we have always thought that it was or, or is. And uh, Zechariah 12:6 showing that Jerusalem will again be established in her own place, and it emphasizes it twice. So has it been removed somewhere from where it originally was and a counterfeit or a fake set up? That is the question on the table. Uh, I'm not prepared to say for sure on that. We're looking at evidence, and I say this for the sake of those who may be listening in who haven't heard everything. Uh, we don't know for sure yet, but there is a great deal of circumstantial evidence at least and some scriptures that are coming clearer that we never understood before or simply ignored or just simply looked over. <clears throat> I went to Jeremiah 31, and I'd like to go back there just briefly to recap a little bit of what I said at the end of the sermon last week, and that is that in the last verse of chapter 30, uh, it talks about, in the latter days you shall understand it, and at the same time in chapter 31, says the eternal, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. So. Uh, in the latter times, we are to understand the plan of God, what he plans to do, and how he is going to become the God of all the families of Israel, and that they will again be his people. Uh, there's some points I want to, to look at just briefly again. Uh, in the end time now, the latter days, understand this, that there were some left of the sword who found grace in the wilderness even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Now, uh, we grasp and understand, I think, that the church has been under spiritual siege now for some 21 years or so, and that many, many people in the church have died of spiritual famine, pestilence, and the sword, and have fallen away or are very spiritually starved or in very poor condition. <laughs> Excuse me. But a remnant of those people will find grace in the wilderness. So where God is going to do his work, his last work in the end time, is in the wilderness. And he says, verse 4, again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. So he is going to cleanse our sins, wipe them away as a cloud in one day, as he says in another place, and we will be in those terms, virgin before him again. Our sins removed. And we'll go ahead and be happy and have dances that make merry. Uh, he says you'll plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. So this wilderness is in an area that was part of Samaria. Uh, the ten tribes of Israel were in Samaria. The Jews were around Jerusalem. There shall be a day Verse 6, the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion, to the eternal our God. 
And I postulated last time that the United States may indeed be Ephraim as opposed to Britain. Uh, this is to happen in Mount Ephraim and say, go to Zion. And I think that what we're looking at here is that Zion is in and Jerusalem is in. The original ones will be in the land of Ephraim. So someone, a watchman, will stand up in Ephraim and say, let's go to Zion. <clears throat> he makes a point here uh, in verse 9, that I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, originally, Reuben was the firstborn. Uh, but God takes it upon himself here not to do his end-time work in Reuben. So he just simply says, for the purposes of my end-time work, Ephraim is my firstborn. And indeed, in the United States is where he raised up Herbert Armstrong and did his work from the southwestern United States. Uh, I suspect that that pattern will continue and that he will do his final temple in the wilderness of the southwestern United States. I think this is beginning to come together. Uh, verse 12, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, and shall flow together to the goodness of the eternal. So he's talking about the gathering here of his people in the latter days, that a watchman in Ephraim will cry and say, let's go to Zion, and they'll go to the height of Zion. Uh, Zion, therefore, is mountainous, and the Zion in the one place we recognize as Jerusalem today uh, is not a mountain. It isn't the glory of all the land, and you can't go down into it. Uh, it just doesn't work that way, because that one over there is not a mountain. So I wanted to reiterate a little bit of that before we go on uh, into the book of Nehemiah further. We came down to chapter 2 before uh, I took this side trip into showing where God has set his name. <clears throat> it may be that we have allowed uh, the church, which God defines as Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, to meet in various places around the earth uh, for peace, partly because of logistics and time and money. And in one sense, those may have qualified. But on the other hand, God's original intent was to meet in Jerusalem. And it may, the, the, the church Jerusalem, spiritual Jerusalem and Zion would meet in physical Zion and Jerusalem. And of course, later on, they're all going to come up to worship God at Jerusalem. So it behooves us to know where the correct Jerusalem is. Is the one in the Middle East a counterfeit of Satan? Or... Uh, is it the true Jerusalem? That we need to find out. We need to know, because I think in the end, when God brings his remnant people together, he is going to have them worship at Jerusalem. I think Jeremiah 31, and Jerusalem and Zion, I think Jeremiah 31 is pointing that out specifically for us. So we'd better find out where it is for sure. If there's a question, then that question needs to be resolved one way or the other. So, let's go on then to Nehemiah 2. <clears throat> um, so, as it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that would be in the springtime, same time as Abed, the first month of the year, 
the wine was before the king, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Remember Artaxerxes, uh, my research shows, was Ahasuerus, the same as the husband of Esther the queen. Uh, so wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. When you're around the king who has the capacity to order at any moment, your head lopped off. Uh, you try to be cheery and merry and happy in serving and giving, and you don't have any pouting or back talk or sullen looks or eye rolls. Uh, when you're around the king, you have the right attitude at all times. And he feared because he was so saddened by the plight of his people that he simply couldn't hold all that emotion in. Wherefore the king said to me, Why is your countenance sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Uh, I'm not up to par today. The king has seen it. He's noticed it. Wow, now I'm in trouble. So he said to the king, let the king live forever. Something you like to say to kings. Uh, they like to hear it. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lies waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Now we've seen that from Jeremiah 9:11 that Jerusalem again uh, has been desolate and the den of dragons, uh, no people there, no inhabitant, among other places. And the city in the Middle East, as far as I know, has never been in that condition. We'll see a little more to back this up uh, here today, I think. I think we'll get to it from some scriptures we haven't even looked at yet that I happen to run across today. So what, why shouldn't I be sad if the city's laid waste and the gates are ever consumed with fire? Then the king said to me, for what do you make request? <laughs> you know, you're sad. Well, what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You know, sometimes momentary quick prayers can mean a lot. The king has just asked him a question, and he would be expected to respond within a few seconds. You know, you don't get asked a question by a king and just sit there and pray for 30 minutes or get on your knees and bow your head and fold your hands. Uh, this is just a sidelight. But sometimes all we have time for is a very quick prayer. So between the time the king asked the question and he responded, he sent up, please God help me, I guess. Probably about all he had time to say. <clears throat> and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. The king said to me, the queen also sitting by him, and I wonder if that parenthetical thing is there because it was Esther uh, who had delivered the Jews earlier uh, when Haman wanted to kill them all. Um, maybe the reason that's in there. Otherwise, why do you make note of the queen? Normally you wouldn't in most circumstances. Just an internal thing. Uh, I lost where I was reading. Oh, the queen sitting by him, verse 6, For how long shall your journey be? And when shall you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. We don't know how long that time was, when he was to go and when he was to return. 
whether it was a short journey to old Jerusalem, I mean the Jerusalem we know today, or whether it was much, much further away and required more, is not said here. Nor does it say really where this Babylon was that we're talking about. <clears throat> Moreover, I said to the king, if it please the king, let the letters be given to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey, convey me over till I come into Judah. Now the Euphrates, according to where Babylon sits today, or did sit, now it's been destroyed, but where it sat anciently, is the Euphrates, and it ran through the middle of the city, interestingly. They had a, went under the wall, out the other end of the city. And if you're sitting in Babylon at the king's palace, was the king's throne on one side of the river or the other? Who knows? This is a thought that just came to my mind. Uh, if the river runs through the city, why do you refer to across the river as if it were a long way away? Because the river was right there and it came right through the city. It wasn't even to the uh, west of the city, where you might normally think. But let letters be given to me, to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Uh, there must have been forest somewhere near Jerusalem, because he wanted to get timber from it to build uh, the walls of the city. Now, there are no forests with trees big enough near Jerusalem. That doesn't mean they couldn't go to Lebanon or somewhere and get them, so that is a possibility. I'm not going to try to make a too big a case here for not uh, having a forest around the present Jerusalem, because they did, at times, apparently carry uh, timber that far. <clears throat> anyway... To the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter in. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I answered a prayer, in other words. Then I came to the governors beyond the river. Uh, some say that anciently they referred to the Atlantic Ocean as the river, that it has ocean currents that flow just like rivers do, like the Gulf Stream that goes up by Florida and on up through uh, by New England and on around then toward Iceland, Greenland and Iceland. Uh, and it may have been that wide river. I don't know that for sure. We're still working on that. But just some thoughts in here to consider and ponder and think about uh, in whatever context this comes up maybe again later. So he gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So he had to be protected, and horsemen went with him. Uh, does that mean it was overland and didn't have anything to do with ships? I don't know. If it had to do with ships, they could have had horses and, a, and an army that escorted them as far as the sea and then gotten on boats. Or it may have been that uh, the horses and men were loaded on because they had ships then that could hold thousands of people. I don't know, just questions. So when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So Israel had traditional enemies and anything that was done uh, for 
the true Israelites, they hate it. <clears throat> so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. When he arrived, he'd been there three days, rested up from the journey, I guess, he got himself settled. And I rose in the night, I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. Now, Nehemiah was being very, very careful here. He knew there were enemies. He knew that whatever he did was going to be hated. And I'll tell you this, if we find that a Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt, and that the temple needs to be rebuilt, and it isn't done by the Jews in the Jerusalem we know today, they're going to be enemies. There will be, there will be many people who hate. And, and we need to take a lesson here from Nehemiah. Uh, he rose in the night. He didn't tell any man, didn't talk it up, what God had put in his heart. But he simply, very quietly, went about doing what he had to do. Now, we're talking about this in theory, and I don't know that that needs to be done at this point here in the end time. But if it is determined that it needs to be done, and it can be proven and shown how and where, then I think that we should take a strong lesson from this and keep our plans and our purposes, our location, very, very quiet. Uh, this is the historical account. And if there is anything that needs to be done in the end time anywhere near uh, the magnitude of this or the, the type of this, that it needs to be done very, very carefully and quietly. Uh, I'll remind of uh, Isaiah 16, 1 through 3, where it tells a servant of God to go quietly and to make your shadow as the night. Uh, very secretive, very careful. Loose lips, loose ships. And also, I'm not going to go there for sake of time, but if it's back in, I think it's Isaiah 37, 38, right through there, uh, the king of Assyria came to Hezekiah or sent men there and Hezekiah showed him everything that was in the palace all the secret things all the precious things of God uh, Hezekiah showed the Assyrians and then Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said what did you show the Assyrians and he said well I showed them everything and Isaiah told him that as a result of what he had done Obviously, it didn't please God. As a result of what he had done in showing the precious things of God to the Assyrian, the enemy, <clears throat> that his sons would be made eunuchs in Babylon. That's a pretty dire thing. Have your sons all castrated in Babylon and be servants in the king's court and not be able to reproduce and carry on Hezekiah's lineage, for that matter. Hezekiah had a strange attitude and said, well, as long as it doesn't happen in my day, because after I'm dead, no big deal. Well, selfish to the core there in his attitude. But the point I want to make is uh, God does not want his things uh, spread around, shown, talked about in a way that could compromise what God has in mind to do. Christ said the same thing in principle when he said, cast not your pearls before swine. 
uh, don't show the enemy, don't show the Assyrians uh, the things of God. It doesn't do any good to tell carnal-minded people spiritual things. They will not appreciate them. They'll trample them in the dirt. And you will have done no good, and you might even do some harm. So we have to be very, very careful. So let's take a lesson here from Nehemiah. And as we progress and as we see this or see that or don't, um, then we need to remember how Nehemiah approached it. So he didn't tell anybody, didn't talk it all up, didn't say, we're going to go build Jerusalem up uh, and want everybody to know and everybody pitch in. He knew there would be enemies. He knew to be careful. So he took only a very few men with him and didn't talk it around at all and didn't even take anything with him but the one horse that he rode. And I went out by night. Didn't even go in the daytime where he could be observed. I went out by night by the gate of the valley. You know, it could have been innocent enough. Somebody just arrived there three days before, and they wanted to go out and look around in the ruins of Jerusalem and see what was there. I mean, any tourist would want to do that. Uh, so that shouldn't be taken as in a wrong way. And yet, he wanted to be extra careful anyway. Went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well into the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. It must have been a moonlight night, I suppose, to some degree, and looked at what was there <clears throat> and could see the destruction. Then I went under the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went out in the night by the brook, stream, creek, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. So he went out and made his survey. And the rulers knew not where I went or what I did. So here he emphasizes it all over again. Says it, then he goes and does it, and then he reminds us. I kept my big, fat mouth shut. I think there's a great deal of instruction there for us. <laughs> Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did or would do the work, or that were scheduled, or he would ask to do the work. So he didn't tell it to anybody from the top to the bottom. Kept it very quiet with a very few men. Then said I to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, the gates are ever burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. Now, we heretofore have referred to this in spiritual terms, but the church has been scattered. Jerusalem spewed out of God's mouth, and there are great holes and great splintering and destruction, and that the breaches have to be healed that the wall has to be rebuilt, proper doctrine put in place to build a spiritual wall around the church. And I think that that certainly is a very important analogy and an approach that we need to have. On the other hand, we need to consider at least that perhaps there will be some physical work that needs to be done as well. I'm not saying there is. I'm saying that's a possibility we need to consider and at least allow into our thinking at this point. Let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. 
church has to be gathered its remnant together so that the church be no more a reproach because when God blesses the remnant that he brings together, it is going to be a glorious church and people try to reproach us or say nay to us, we can say, look, what God has done. And perhaps physically too, we'll see. Verse 18, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work, went to work at it. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? In other words, the city had been laid waste, and they didn't figure it ought to be rebuilt, and that that would be going contrary to what the king would want if they did rebuild it. Then answered I them and said to them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. There's your answer. Anytime anybody asks anything about us, we're the servants of God. We will do what God wants, and he will take care of us. Wasn't that pretty much what they said back in Ezra? Remember that when we went through there? Um, yeah, chapter 5, verse 11. Thus they, re they returned us an answer saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and build a house that was builded these many years ago, which a great king of Israel built it and set up. And then how God had destroyed them after they had provoked them to anger by disobedience. But that's the only authority we need to do, that we need to have to do what God wants done, is that we're the servants of God. We don't have to have PhDs and degrees and experience and all kinds of things. We just need to have a willingness to gird up our loins and our hands and strengthen our hands to do God's work. And God will prosper us. So he says, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. God is not going to turn over the building of his church, his spiritual organism, spiritual temple, or his physical temple to anyone who is not qualified to do so. It has to be the Latter-day Saints, and by that I don't mean the Mormons. I mean God's own true people. The Jews are not qualified, the physical Jews, by any stretch of the imagination. Christ told them that they would have nothing more, or he would have nothing more to do with them and not see him again until they accepted and blessed those whom God would send. And he started that with the original apostles in the church. Christ called them snakes, serpents, whited sepulchers, and a few other things. And Paul did too in uh, Acts, I mean in uh, Romans 3. So those people are not obedient to God. They're not the servants of God. They do not have the Spirit of God. They are not qualified to build the temple of God, be it a physical or a spiritual temple. Now, if they decide to build one there in Jerusalem as they seem to be proposing to do and have plans to do and we keep hearing about, they may. But it may be a counterfeit temple and it may not have any spiritual meaning to God. I think I could guarantee that part. 
But those are apostates. They've never accepted Christ. Uh, and if they were snakes then, they're even more poisonous today. They haven't gotten any better over the centuries than they were when Christ told them what they were and told them they worshiped their father, the devil. Now, God destroyed Jerusalem and made it desolate because of sin and apostasy and idolatry and worship of the devil. Do you think for one moment that he is going to turn the rebuilding of Jerusalem back over, or the temple, back over to people whose father is the devil? And the father of Judaism is the devil. That's not 1 Daryl 3.16. That's the words of our Lord. You worship, you know not what. Your father, the devil, he from another place. He tells us in Isaiah 52, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. He says that Cyrus is going to uncover the secret treasures of God, and those secret treasures, I believe, from Ezra and other places, include the temple vessels. And if we, as the physical human beings, who are also spiritual vessels, are not clean, he will not hand over to us the spiritual or the physical to rebuild. That's just all there is to it. We have to be clean spiritually. And the only ones who could possibly qualify for that in the end time are God's chosen, called out people, his church in the end time, and even more specifically, only that faithful remnant that he stirs himself to come from afar and build in the temple. And there I'm quoting Zechariah 6 and the book of Haggai. It has to be done. So the right, the right attitude was maintained here by Nehemiah and his people. And Nehemiah just told them, you don't have any portion, you don't have any right, nor any memorial in Jerusalem. Now this should settle the question, if we know where the true Jerusalem is, of who should live there and who should be there. If you go back to 19, verse 19, the Horonites, uh, the Ammonites, the Arabians are not to be involved because they were the ones who were told you have no portion or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Now, do they in that Jerusalem in the Middle East? Maybe so, because it may not be God's Jerusalem. Uh, but when we find the true Jerusalem that has to be built in her own place, then those peoples have no right, no memorial, no portion, nothing to do with it. Uh, God will only have those who are clean. And I think that whoever finds the Ark of the Covenant, if it is ever found in this age, had better be fully qualified and duly authorized to touch that. And we need to be fully qualified to touch any of the things of God. He is not going to turn Jerusalem that is desolate over to people who are doing the same things that he caused it to be made desolate for. That doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, I wanted to emphasize that point some more. Now, chapter 3, uh, then Eliashib, the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests. They built the sheep gate. Uh, I'm not going to read this chapter verse by verse. Uh, I don't think it 
is needed right at the moment. Now, there may be some things here that turn out to be very important at some point, but I think right now, for sake of time, to go by and just read it verse by verse and read all the names uh, isn't something we need to do in public. You can certainly do it in private, and I have. And there might be a time when we will want to, for some reason, uh, God put these things in here for a reason. We're finding more and more that some of the things we thought didn't have any real reason may have some pretty important uh, reason for being there. Uh, this name, this man, means God will restore. And he's the first one named working on the sheep gate. It is interesting that what they did was they had a crew uh, by family, it looks like, pretty much, uh, building on different parts of the wall. They subbed it out to different families. So it was a cooperative effort, and each group was working on their own section. Uh, it wasn't like they just all pitched in and started in one spot, but they divided the work up and made people responsible for that particular section. And as you go through here, it shows that some worked really, really hard, some worked overtime, some earnestly repaired, verse 20. Uh, there's one place, what am I, will fall on it, yeah, verse 12. Next to him repaired Shalom, the son of Holohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. Uh, that's an interesting comment because we're an emancipated nation today, the women and you know, women are mentioned in conjunction with doing various things, but in those days, uh, it was still very much a man's world. So for the daughters to be mentioned must show that they they chipped in, they worked hard, uh, they did the job well, and they got credit for it. So not just the men, but this man's daughters worked hard and, and did well. And because of their attitude and how they worked, they're mentioned in the Bible. Um, so let's uh, let's skip on over that then the various gates and the different people that did it obviously they're working hard at repairing the walls but the enemies that came and how they went about it and what they had to do you know, is I think more interesting for us at the moment at least so let's go to chapter 4 but it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall he was angry and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. These would have been true Jews, not Edomites, those who were qualified. And he spoke before the brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Now, Israel had basically left. They had uh, occupied the ten tribes, the area called Samaria. But when they departed for uh, other parts to migrate out of there, the Babylonians had moved other peoples, Gentile nations, in to inhabit the land and farm it and so on. So these were not Israelites at this point, this army of Samaria, but they were Gentiles. And said, what do these feeble Jews? You know, we're strong, we're big, there's more of us. What are these stupid, feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Are they going to become strong? Will they sacrifice? Are they going to start up sacrifices again? Uh, that was cut off. Is it going to happen? Will they make an end in a day? Are they going to be so, if, as this is sarcasm, are they going to be so great that they they do all this in a day? They're just, they're just so wonderful. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish? 
which are burned. You know, these feeble people, are they going to suddenly do a miracle here just overnight? And they were laughing, I'm sure, and saying these things in scorn. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Well, a fox isn't a very big animal, and it treads very lightly, uh, walks gently. And he says, ah, these idiots, they're going to build a wall, and if a fox even got on it, it would tear it down. So they were not real impressed with what they thought the Jews could get done. Um, if we go out to build a little village in the desert, most people will think that's silly. What are those feeble people going to do? What are they going to do out there in the desert? Well, we're not going to do anything, brethren. But God is. And so far what we've done, people could laugh and say, well, that's just men. They think God's doing it. Well, hang on to your hats for a while. We'll see. Keep your shirt on. Be patient. And let's see what God does, because he makes some very strong promises. Remember, too, that uh, just as a sidelight, that a, a fox, uh, the Edomites were referred to as foxes. Christ called Herod a fox. You tell that fox, uh, Herod was half Edomite. So there, there may be a little bit of hidden meaning here. I'm sure there's derision. Even a, a physical fox going on their wall could destroy it. But he might also be saying tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, these Jews think they can do something, but an Edomite could destroy what they're building. An Edomite would be stronger than they are. I don't know whether that was intended or not, but we do know that in the Bible, the Edomites are symbolized as foxes. Uh, back in the Song of Songs, it just occurs, it talks about uh, the foxes eating the little grapes. And I think that that is talking about the bride of Christ and how the foxes or the Edomites will come and try to destroy the uh, tender fruit before it is ripe of the church and of Jacob. So that analogy certainly is in the Bible. All right, they're being laughed at, they're being scorned, their work is being impugned. So what do they say? Here's another clue for us, verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head. That shows you that this was derision and an attitude of scorn and sarcasm right there. And give them for a prey in the land of captivity. So when we have enemies come, we pray to God. Ask him for his help. Vengeance is mine, says the eternal. I will repay. Not our job to create vengeance but we can't ask him to take vengeance. That's very clear here. Cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So build we the wall, or built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together to the height thereof, for the people had a mind to work. They had a willing attitude and spirit. And what does God tell us in Haggai and Zephaniah? to be of good courage, to fear not, uh, and to work. They had a mind to work. They had a heart set on getting the job done. And he is looking for that in his people today. He does not want us to do things half-heartedly. He wants us to, whatever we, our hand finds to do, and whatever his hand directs us to do, 
people. We should put our whole heart, our whole might into it um, to do his work, to do what he wants done. So we need to prepare our attitudes to be serving, giving, helping, doing whatever we can. If we're supposed to be building a village or a town and there are going to be more, then we need to be working mightily for getting that village built in the right way and in helping one another, strengthening one another, so that the work might get done and get done in the way God wants and in the time he wants. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very angry and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Some people simply don't believe in conspiracies. They don't believe there is any such thing. Well, right here in the pages of your Bible, that these people conspired against Israel. So there is precedent in the past for conspiracies by Gentiles against Israelites. Wow. So if anybody doesn't believe in conspiracies, well, they just need to get real. What did Satan do? He conspired with one-third of the angels to take over God's throne. That was the first great conspiracy. It was against God, and it was against God's holiness and his being and his sovereignty. And there have been conspiracies ever since. Uh, Satan continued that with Adam and Eve in the garden where he conspired with them to put God in his place, that is, below Satan and Adam and Eve. He wanted to raise man up above God, and he wanted to raise himself up in the process, certainly. So conspiracies go a long way back, and there have always been people Alexander the Great, Hitler, Napoleon, uh, name a thousand from history, who've conspired to rule the world. How, let me put it this way, how could there not be a conspiracy of men behind the scenes who want to rule the world today? It is a historical fact, it's human nature, it's what has always occurred, so if it did not occur today, in this day and age, it would be an absolute aberration. It would be the first time in history that there has not been a conspiracy. There have always been conspiracies to kill the heirs of the throne by people who wanted to take over. You, you can't go into the history of a nation or a culture and not find conspiracies there. So based on history and man's nature and Satan's nature, there has to be a conspiracy at the end. There's no way there can't be. We have a beast and a false prophet that Scripture says are going to take over the rulership of the world and they're going to reign for three and a half years. Do you have to get together and plan that ahead of time to rule the world? Or do you just wake up one day and suddenly you rule the world? No, you got to sit down and figure it out and plan it and determine how you're going to do it and then put your plan into action. 
And the Bible itself says there will be a world-ruling government at the end time of man, led by the beast and the false prophet, Satan's two witnesses. Is there a conspiracy? There's no way there can't be. And anybody who can't hear what I just said and understand that simply is hiding from it and don't want to know it. You can't refute it. You can only reject it because it's Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's Scripture and everything in between. Did the Jews conspire to kill Christ? What is a conspiracy? It's an agreement done among people to accomplish their goal, be it nefarious or good for that matter. You have to get together and plan something. And they did plan to kill him, and indeed they did kill him. That was a classic conspiracy. Well, I went off there on a trip, and that's all right. I, I think that needs to be explained, because there are still a lot of people in the Church of God, the greater Church of God, who simply don't believe that there are people who are planning to rule the world. Uh, how do they expect the prophecies to be filled without that, or fulfilled without that? All right, so they conspired to come and to fight against Jerusalem. I want to back up to verse 7. Uh, it talks here about the breaches began to be stopped. In other words, they began to build up portions of the wall, and the holes in between uh, the, the crews that were working began to be filled in. And they, they may have had a certain footage there that they were putting up, and then where one crew uh, it stopped and the other stopped, you still had a gap there. So then they began to fill in those gaps um, between the different crews that were working and stopped the breaches. Now, we've looked at this before in Isaiah 58, but I want to go back there because there's a point I want to make that uh, could have some bearing on the things that we're looking at today about where Jerusalem is and its present status in the world. Remember Jeremiah 9:11, where it says that the cities of Judah and Jerusalem would be without inhabitant and be uh, the home of, of lizards, dragons, jackals, whatever translation you're reading. Chapter 58 of Isaiah says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. So this is in a time when Israel is in great sin, is about to go into captivity, and it says they have a form of religion, and they delight to approach God, they like to go to church, and they like to show their prayers, but they don't have the right attitude. There's selfishness and greed and vanity and strife and so on that goes on. I'm not going to do this, go through this verse by verse. We do that a lot of times on atonement. But in verse 6, he says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to get rid of sin, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? He tells us in Isaiah 52, we're to break the yoke of Babylon off our neck and quit letting them walk all over us. So this is very much an in-time prophecy here about the right kind of fasting and what fasting is supposed to accomplish, not just to get hungry, but it's supposed to accomplish something. And we're to start looking outward to deal our bread to others, not just feed ourselves, but to fast and then give our food to other people. 
That is something God would desire of us. In other words, we're to be giving, outgoing, serving, loving to others, not just selfish and taking care of ourselves. And indeed, if he's going to put a remnant together, and we can be there when it starts happening to serve them, to help them, this would be what he would want our attitude to be. And he says, if you do that, verse 8, then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of God will be behind you. Then shall you call, and the Eternal will answer. And you shall cry, and he'll say, he shall say, here I am. If you take away from you the midst of the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. We overcome, we grow, we change. We don't point at other people and say how they need to change, but we take care of it. And if we turn outward to others, then he will begin to bless us. Remember what we saw in Job, where it said, even though he abhorred himself and saw what God was, God didn't bless him until he prayed for his friends. Until he quit thinking about himself and turned outward, he was not blessed. And then he was blessed way beyond anything he had ever had before. And God is going to do the same thing with his people. I'm laying some background here for what we're about to get to. Uh, verse 11, the eternal shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. This isn't just something to be read on atonement for the last 40, 50 years. This is something that is part of a prophecy for the near future. Make fat your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. He's going to, to have springs, rivers in the wilderness. He's going to give us the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, he says just a few chapters back. And that's what this is talking about. And they that shall be of you, verse 12, those who are with you, if you will do these things above, shall build the old waste places. People at the end time, if they do the right things, will be used of God to build the old waste places. Now remember what I said about uh, be you clean, the bear, the vessels of the eternal from Isaiah 52, just a few chapters back. He's saying here, if we'll clean up our act, we'll turn outward if we want to serve and give and help, because that's what God does. That's his kind of love. Then he will bless us, and those that are with us or of us will build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. So it's both a spiritual thing, and it very well could be a physical thing as well. Spiritual in that we are these restorers of paths to dwell in. But we've seen in Jeremiah and other places that Jerusalem was made desolate, just like the scriptures about Babylon being made desolate. We never emphasized that. Herbert Armstrong emphasized Babylon and various other cities being laid waste and be, being only where shepherds went and so on. But there are scriptures that say the same thing about Jerusalem, and we never paid any attention to them. Now, I think it is very interesting here. They shall build the old waste places, places that have been laid waste. Is Jerusalem today laid waste? This is referring to building walls. Walls of what? Repairing the breaches. Where were the breaches repaired? What could this be referring to? It could only be referring to something biblical, 
And the only thing in there that was repaired in the breaches and made shut were the walls of Jerusalem. So church, the church is Jerusalem, and we have to repair and restore the paths to dwell in. So that's spiritual righteousness in Jerusalem, the church. So if there is physical waste place or are physical waste places that have to be rebuilt, then that would also be in Jerusalem. Where else could it be? Because that's what the whole analogy is about. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. Now we're, what, 20 years removed from the destruction of the spiritual temple at the end, the former temple, not generations. God is still dealing with the same generation that was in the church when it was destroyed. He's not called a lot of new people, and there are a lot of people out there trying to get God to call a lot of new people, and God isn't. So Herbert Armstrong did restore and build a former temple in the end time, a spiritual temple. He even made a physical temple, called it an auditorium, but he said dedicated to the great God. Use the same name that uh, we find in Ezra, I think five. So it was both a spiritual and a physical renewal then. But he says here that we, those of us who will do what he says in the chapter above, will build the old waste places and raise up the foundations of many generations. So I think what this is saying is that the, de the death, the desolation, and the destruction that has to be repaired goes back many, many generations. So it may be that Jerusalem, according to Jeremiah 9:11, that was made desolate, has been desolate for many generations, a long, long time, and that now it needs to be restored. Let's go to Isaiah 61, and we see a little bit more about that. The end of chapter. Uh, 60, it talks, verse 21, Your people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. He says he's going to pluck a tender branch off the top of the tree in Ezekiel 17, and he's going to start a job. And Christ is the branch off the Father, and yet Zerubbabel is typified in the prophecies as the branch, the righteous branch, or the right bough, if you will. So this is talking about the end time. And he says, I will hasten it in his time, verse 22. The Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me, because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He shall send me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. This isn't millennial. This is a time when you still have people who are brokenhearted, who have not been made free, uh, that are still bound. And it talks about the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of vengeance of God. The millennial millennium will be on the other side of the vengeance of God. So this is speaking of someone preaching before that vengeance is unleashed. 
to comfort all that mourn. So God is going to send a branch to his people to give them comfort. Go back to Isaiah 40, and it says essentially the same thing. There it says, Comfort you, comfort you, my people. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, that God is going to begin to bless, and the hard times that we've been having are going to go away. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain shall be made low. The glory of God shall be revealed. All flesh is going to see this together. God is going to do something that is going to be a light to the whole world, and it's not millennial yet. It talks about crying that the grass withers and the flower fades, and God is going to destroy it, and surely the people is grass. That's not millennial. That's the withering of the people of this earth before then. But he says, speak comfortably to those who are my faithful, that they will be preserved when God withers the earth and bring good tidings to Zion and to Jerusalem. So this is speaking of the same thing in chapter 61. Now let's go on down. Uh, to comfort those that mourn, verse 3, to point to them that mourn in Zion, uh, not somewhere else, but in Zion, to give to them beauty for ashes. So there are going to be those who go to Zion who are still going to be mourning or still be sad, still not be delivered, but they will give them, be given beauty for ashes. Ashes is something that's burned up that isn't worth a whole lot. Fertilizer made, and that's it. Instead, we'll have beauty. The oil of joy for mourning. Remember, the fast days will be turned into feasts of joy. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So we'll have praise and happiness instead of heavy hearts. That they might be called trees of righteousness. Isaiah 41, he says he's going to plant seven trees in the wilderness. So the people of God will be called trees of righteousness, the plantings of the eternal, that he might be glorified. So these things are going to happen for the glory of God. Now notice this. And they shall build the old waste. They shall raise up the former desolations. So the people right at the end are going to build up wastes that are of old time, and they're going to raise up that which has been desolate. And they shall repair the waste cities, spoken of at Jeremiah 9, the, the, town, the cities of Judah that have been destroyed and are made desolate. The desolations of many generations. So this is the desolation that has been there for a long time. This isn't building up a Jerusalem that we might know today that is over there, that has been there all these years. It is not desolate. It is full of people. Uh, we have People have assumed that it would be destroyed here in the end time and then be rebuilt in the millennium. But this talks about a Jerusalem that has been desolate and has been waste for many generations being restored. Now, the Church of God in the former temple has already been restored by Herbert Armstrong, so it's not talking just spiritually here. That, that has already been done. And we are still the same generation that was raised up under Herbert Armstrong, and we will not die out 
it will still be old men who will be able to see the restored latter temple. And it will outshine far by far in glory that which came before in worldwide. We've got to go way beyond what worldwide was. And the only way we can do that is with the explicit help of God. So, is this physical? I ask the question. Not sure I can fully answer it at the moment. I have my feelings, but I don't know that this is the case. But this is talking about building up old ways that has been there for many generations. So is it physical waste we're talking about as opposed to the spiritual wasteland? The spiritual wasteland has only lasted about 21 years, not generations. And that can be fixed fairly quickly. But what about the other? Just some questions to ponder and to think about the more we study this subject. So the breach is being repaired in the walls and Isaiah 58 is followed by a little bit more information on Isaiah 61, which uh, adds a, an exclamation point to what we're talking about here. All right, let's go back to Nehemiah. I wanted to take that little side trip because it has to do with what will be done prophetically. Isaiah 58 through 61 are very prophetic, uh, approaching the time when Christ will come to the earth, but not there yet. So it kind of updates Nehemiah and says that this story of building, the, of filling the breaches, building the walls, has to be done at the end time, certainly spiritually. And now we're raising the question, is it also physical? That answer will become more obvious, I think, as time goes on as to whether it is so or not so. So I'm not going to preach it. Uh, I'm just going to open uh, some thought here and something else to plug into the equation and see piece by piece what the picture comes out to be. So don't tell anybody that I'm preaching we're going to have to build a physical temple and we're going to have to build a physical Jerusalem. Uh, I think that that could be the case, and Daniel 9 seems to indicate it as well, that from the time that the order goes to build Jerusalem and restore the walls and to dig the moat, that we'll have 70 weeks. So it may very well be a physical thing. And certainly you have to tie into that Isaiah 44 and 45 where it talks about an unconverted man who does not know God saying to Jerusalem, your walls shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Last verse of chapter 44, Isaiah. Uh, and that could not be speaking of the spiritual, because Zerubbabel, remember, in Zechariah 4, laid the foundation of the spiritual temple, and his hands must finish it. And that's clearly talking the spiritual there, about the two giving oil out of themselves to the uh, seven churches. So that is a spiritual thing there. But an unconverted man would not be dealing with the spiritual things with God's spiritual people. They would have to be physical. So I think that is a very clear indication, perhaps, that there is something physical that has to be done. So we'll sort of set that back for the moment now and, and go on and ponder that some more and study the scriptures some more and see what God has in mind. Meantime, we'd better be clean to bear the vessels of the eternal so that if he does have a job that needs done, we have prepared our hands to work, prepared our attitudes and minds,
and that we've made our minds and bodies clean before God so that we can build back that which was destroyed for sin. He is not going to allow those who are still imputed as sinners to build back that which was destroyed by sin. doesn't make any sense at all. It has to be by people who are righteous in God's eyes. Okay, let's go on down then in uh, Nehemiah 4. We just finished verse 7 and then went from there to Isaiah uh, 58 and 61. Uh, well, I read 8 and we and commented on verse 8 about the conspiracy to come fight against Jerusalem and to hinder the work that was being done. So if God has a city, a temple to be built in the end time, uh, expect enemies. Expect the conspiracy against it. You might even expect a worldwide conspiracy, considering that the Revelation, the book of Revelation makes it very clear that only a very few people are going to worship God, the rest will worship the beast, the whole world. And it will be the whole world and Satan's two witnesses, the beast and the false prophet, against God's two witnesses and a small remnant of the church. That's the way the battle lines shape up for the future. Okay, so they conspired to kill, to stop. What do you do? Verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. So they prayed to God, asked for his help, and then they set a watch against the people who would come and try to kill them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burden is decayed, and there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. You know, if you've, if you've ever tried to clean up a burned-out house or something that has collapsed, uh, emotionally and psychologically, it seems impossible to you. There's just so much work to do, so many nails to be pulled, so much trash to go through, so much charred wood to, to make a mess. So the people were saying, this is a big deal and we're tired. This is difficult. There's too many problems. The problems of the past are in our way. The mess that was left behind by others is in our way. Now, we can't look at the dregs of worldwide and say the dregs of the past are in our way. We simply have to clear it out, not make any excuses, strengthen our arms, and go to work and get it right this time so God will not spew it out of his mouth again. Because that's what he would do if we continue on as we were in worldwide before God spewed us out. We cannot blame it on the ministers. We cannot blame it on the devil. It is the people who slumbered and slept. It is we who says we are rich and blessed and have everything we need and all we have is to have is a phone call and we'll run to Petra and everything will be fine. We were in a lackadaisical, spiritually proud, arrogant attitude. And that's what God spewed us out for. Not because what the devil did to us, not what the ministry did to us, but each of us as individuals, be we minister or lay member. God spewed us all, not just some. And if we're part of the spewing, then we're part of the problem. 
So let's not be that way and say we're tired. But what did Christ say? He who endures to the end will be saved. Clear to the end. Patient to the end. We can't lay our problems on someone else in our past. We simply have to move forward, grow and overcome. That's all that matters. And our adversaries said, You shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. So they conspired to sneak in and kill these people before they knew what was coming. That is a conspiracy, dear hearts. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said to us ten times, From all places whence you shall return to us, they will be upon you. So, threats, threats, threats. Therefore said I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Now, if you're a physical Israelite, uh, you pray to God and you take the sword. Ephesians 6 tells us that our armor is the whole armor of God. The helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and so on. The sword of the word. And I looked and rose up and said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not you afraid. These are the same things. We've run across two instances now uh, that Zephaniah and Haggai say. Be of good courage. Uh, don't be afraid. Work. So the same principles were involved then that are involved today in, in the prophecies for what must be done here at the end of building the temple. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the eternal, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. What we have, spiritually speaking, is important, and we need to fight with all our hearts that we might be saved that we might fulfill the purposes and the, the job that God has set before us. Remember how Herbert Armstrong used to tell us we're not here for personal salvation, we're here to do a work? Well, he built the former temple. That was the work that needed to be done. He did a great calling work. That was the work that needed to be done. And we pitched in with work parties, we pitched in with tithes and offerings, we pitched in in every way with our prayers, with our letters, with our encouragement of each other. Uh, we pitched in to build that temple. And we got the wrong attitude, and God spewed us out. And he says, now, all right, start over. This time, do it right. So we got to redo it. we got to rebuild it. And let's not worry about the heaps and the piles and the mess behind us, but let's get busy and build a ladder temple. He says, though people be people say that it isn't time to do that, right there in Haggai 1, but he says, it's what I want done. So, we're not here, brethren, for our personal salvation. We're here to do the work of God, to build his temple, to build Jerusalem, spiritually and maybe physically. <laughs> that is the job that is set before us. We need to prepare our hearts and minds, strengthen our arms, and go to work to get done what God wants done. Now, if we do the will of God, if we fulfill his purposes, if we reach out to others as they come in, and we help, and we strengthen, and we get things ready for them before they even come, 
so that there's a spiritual place prepared of unity, of love, of peace, of joy, and of happiness. And if there's even a physical place, because it's a physical villages with men and cattle. You don't have spiritual cows. So it's physical as well as spiritual. It has to be prepared and made ready. And that's what God wants done. We can chip in on that and help accomplish it. And if we so do, our salvation will be ensured. And that's what Mr. Armstrong was saying. This isn't a selfish thing, in other words. It's an outgoing, giving, loving work we do for others. And if we do things the way God does them, and isn't he outgoing and loving and giving and offering the whole world salvation ultimately, we should do what we can to be a part of their salvation and start practicing to be the bride of Christ to help save the whole world in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. So it is an outreach of great proportion that we're asked to be a part of, not our saving our own physical hide or even our spiritual salvation. The salvation is ensured if we do the work of God. We don't have to worry about that. Just get busy doing God's work. His work spiritually is take care of the widow and the orphan, help the sick, support the weak, help the feeble, don't misuse, abuse, uh, and hurt your brother. That's in Zechariah and in other places throughout the Bible, that those are the things we're to do all through the New Testament. Uh, Paul talks about those things in the pastoral epistles, how we're to help and serve and give and love and strengthen one another. Uh, that's what God wants done. So, don't be afraid, but protect that which you have. And our sons and daughters and houses uh, are not just physical, but who did Christ say with his family? He says, well, your brothers and sisters, your mother are outside waiting for you. He looked at the people there that were listening to him and said, these are my brothers and sisters. This is my house. So the physical is not, or the physical sons and daughters we might have are not the question here. It's the spiritual family that we're a part of that we need to take care of, pray for, and don't be afraid, but protect and help and strengthen. Verse 15, and it came to pass when our enemies, our enemies heard that it was known to us, they knew the plan to destroy them, and God had brought their counsel to nothing, that we returned all of us to the wall and everyone to his work. Danger passed, let's take care of business. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants worked in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, the bows, the habergons, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. People say, what can I do? Well, sometimes there's physical work to be done, and you have to have people who are physically capable of doing that. Uh, a lot of widows and orphans and old people, and even the very young, are very, very limited in what they can physically do. So you have those who are doing the work, and then you have those who are holding the spears, the bows, and so on. Uh, Spiritually speaking, we can uh, be holding the armor of God. We can be showing faith. We can be living by the word of God. We can have the sword of truth. Uh, all the armament of the body that's listed there in Ephesians, we can put on and help our brothers and sisters through prayer, 
through encouragement, maybe physical food at times, uh, through reminding. Uh, you know, sometimes we think those things aren't important, but here half of them worked on the actual building and half of them were the support. So that is very important, too. If they hadn't had that support, what would have happened? They'd all been killed. So we need support from Satan and his demons through the prayers and the offerings and the sacrifices of those who can't maybe physically do some of the things that have to be done. So they which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens, with all those that laid it, everyone with one of his hands worked in the work, and with the other held a weapon. Try that sometime. Hold a sword in one hand, the hammer in the other one. Try working in that position. For the builders, I mean, this you know this was difficult, but to survive, they had to have the weapons. And since we fight against demons and principalities and powers, we have to continually have the weapons of God at hand. That means we need to pray, we need to study, we need to walk in faith. And otherwise, it's going to be difficult, and our enemies will pull us down. And even though we're doing the very work of God, if we don't stay close to God, we're going to have problems. So we have to take time for prayer and for study. We can't just work physically all the time. The spiritual part of it is very, very important. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. So Nehemiah kept the guy with the trumpet right by him. He was overseeing the whole job as foreman, and he had the trumpet right there in case there was anyone who said, hey, we're having problems. Uh, they could sound the trumpet and warn everyone. And I said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large. This is a big work we're doing. And we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. So it was a big wall around the city, and uh, they were scattered way far apart in terms of protection. Uh, sometimes we feel pretty much all alone, don't we? Well, we need help and we need support. We need strength from each other. In what place, therefore, you hear the sound of the trumpet, resort you there to us. Our God shall fight for us. So it says, you hear the trumpet blow, everybody head there. Somebody's in trouble, somebody's in need, somebody's being attacked. Help them out. We can apply that spiritually as well as in this physical building of the walls. We, that's what those scriptures are about, support the weak, help the feeble, and so on. And God will fight for us. He will help us. So we labored in the work, and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. They didn't work nine to five, but from dawn to dusk. Likewise, at the same time, said I to the people, let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night there may be a guard to us, and labor on the day. So they, <laughs> they worked hard all day long, sunrise to sunset, and then had to help guard at night. This was difficult. A tough job. I think there's some tough work ahead for us. But God is there to help us. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that everyone put them off for washing. They got stinking too bad, you couldn't work together. But they left their clothes on day and night. Didn't put their pajamas on and go nighty-night and tuck themselves in with a pillow and a banky. 
they were ready to go to work, ready to fight, ready to defend, on alert, on call, with their clothes on, any time of day or night. Took them off to wash them, put them back on, and wore them day and night. So they had to be alert, they had to be ready, they had to be willing, they had to sacrifice. Uh, times were difficult, it was not easy. Uh, you know, God could have removed all these enemies. He could have struck them dead. He didn't. He allowed them to be there. Uh, he will allow our enemies to be around. And he does say, though, that he will be with us. He'll protect us. And when it gets so bad that there is no other way that we can protect ourselves, he will be a wall of fire around us. We'll be known as the Ring of Fire people when that day finally and eventually comes. But it will come. People said, well, where is it to me some years ago? I said, when it's needed, it'll be here. We don't need it now. Why should we? Why should God put it out there? We don't need it yet. When we need it, we're doing what God wants done. He will take care of us. He's already told us that. So I'm about out of time. We're into the chapter, so we'll knock off right there into chapter four for today.